This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, of cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. So today we have a special podcast where we're going to discuss PVCs and when should we treat PVCs. And with me today, I have a very special guest, Dr. Jose Rosario, who is the director of the electrophysiology lab at the Grandview Medical Center. And I have to say, we're very fortunate because I think he, you know, he has one of the busiest EP lab, you know, in the state of Alabama. And it has a wealth of experience and, you know, in the field of electrophysiology. So, uh, Jose, thank you very much for taking part of this. And we really appreciate your collaboration. Thank you, Dr. Bouchard. It's a pleasure being here and uh, talking to you and uh, your audience today. Sounds great. So we know that PVCs or premature ventricular contractions are pretty common in the general population. And they tend to increase in frequency with age. The long-term monitoring um, that is such as 48 hours Holter uh, detect PVCs in up to about 70 to 75% of the healthy people. Other studies, however, have shown that in the general population, uh, there can be some PVCs, if they're quite frequent, it can influence and and it can be associated with increased cardiovascular risk and sometimes even increased mortality. to help us sort it out, you know, uh, Jose is here today, and maybe we could start, Jose, by defining uh, and maybe classified what is a PVC, really. So I think what you've described there, your comments are a very good uh, way to start this conversation. So first of all, PVCs, which stand for premature ventricular contraction, they're quite common. And the more you monitor people, the more you monitor patients or the general population, the more you find it especially today with monitoring becoming widespread, right? Not just uh, monitors that we order, but with the Apple Watch, with other wearables, it's uh, becoming very common for patients to diagnose themselves with PVCs and come to us. So let's start this conversation by talking about what are PVCs. So premature ventricular contractions mean essentially early beats that the heart will have. So your heart under normal conditions is operated by an electrical system that tells the muscle when it's time to contract. So the electrical system starts the activation that goes through the muscle that does the contraction. When you have a PVC, what's happening is essentially somewhere in the lower chamber of the heart, there's a group of cells that is not following the rhythm and they tell the heart to contract. And PVCs may happen five, 10 times a day. So a number that is essentially uh, nothing to worry about. But in some patients, they will have five, 10, 20,000 or more PVCs in a day. And at that level, it certainly can affect one's quality of life and even their energy level significantly. PVCs can happen. And I think that's where we're going to start classifying them when for most patients, what we call idiopathic. Idiopathic means we don't know why one has it, but it's happening. And the vast majority of patients I will see with PVCs have idiopathic PVCs. And then as you age, as other comorbidities may happen, for example, coronary disease, um, congestive heart failure, uh, hypertension, or even genetic conditions, those can in time 
cause PVCs as well. So think about those two broad categories we discussed, idiopathic and those that have it related to other heart conditions. The vast majority of patients have idiopathic PVCs that do not have to worry about it. But as I mentioned initially today, they're becoming quite frequent, especially because of the wearables. Very good. And uh, Jose, how do these, um, how do they manifest themselves? I mean, do people just feel palpitations or what kind of symptoms um, can they produce? It's, that's a, quite a good question because it ranges from no symptoms at all. I've seen patients with 20,000 PVCs in a day that cannot tell they're having the PVCs. However, may feel very tired. So fatigue is also a common symptom of PVC, but the actual awareness of the PVC, the palpitations, they are not, not every patient has it. But in terms of what could be a symptom of PVC, it will range from the palpitations. A lot of patients describe it, as you know, as skipped heartbeats. So they will feel their heart really didn't have a beat, and then they have a more forceful beat. Sometimes people describe it as a bigger thump in their chest. Uh, some patients have weird symptoms, such as their eyesight flickering, um, and or they when they go into having a lot of PVCs back-to-back, -back, a pattern we call bigeminy, when every other beat is a PVC, then you can have more significant symptoms. You can have patients that have near syncope or almost pass out. You have patients with chest pain, shortness of breath, and uh, problems with their exercise uh, capacity. So the symptoms, the severity of the symptoms will depend not only in the overall burden, which is the total number of PVCs in the 24 hours, but also if the PVCs are happening in clusters, if the PVCs are having, happening, for example, every other beat. So the more you have PVCs happening every other beat or in clusters when they happen very frequently, the more likely it is that one is going to be symptomatic from this PVCs. Sounds great. So let's see, we have a patient that has documented PVCs. You saw his primary care physician, he did an electrocardiogram or he took the pulse and he finds uh, these PVCs on the electrocardiogram or let's say he was in the hospital and the patient was found to have some PVCs on the monitor. What is a typical workup? Uh, patient comes to see you in the office. What should we expect? That, so let's, um, I think a discussion like that is very important to try to think about first the different scenarios we would see, right? Let's say one that is becoming ever more common now with wearables, a 20 to 40 year old, otherwise healthy individual comes to the office with complaints of palpitations. And sometimes these patients may be quite anxious about those palpitations, obviously worried that they have some serious heart disease. And sometimes they've seen the skipped heartbeats, uh, I'm sorry, the PVCs on the, the, their Apple Watch or other wearable. So for this patient, oftentimes, oftentimes nothing is needed more than a good you know, history and understanding of the burden just based on the conversation and trying to reassure the patient. So let's say, for example, the complaint is simply that and five, six, seven times a day, I have felt my heart skip the beat, and this is what I saw on my Apple Watch. For that patient, if the patient says, I'm able to exercise, I'm able to carry on with a normal life, I tend not to do anything more than reassurance. But now let's say someone comes in and 
has symptoms that are more pronounced. The patient is complaining that sometimes they are very tired. There are days that they're uh, very uh, um, short, having episodes of shortness of breath or even dizzy spells. For those patients, the first step is to understand the burden of PVC. So that's when we're gonna order the monitors, typically a 48 hour monitor, a seven day monitor to see on average over 24 hour period, what is the burden of PVCs? So the burden is the number, individual number of PVCs over a 24 hour period. And we will see what the percentage was. So you may have someone with 5% of the heartbeats being PVCs. The next step is to understand, is the PVCs happening alone or are they also in association with ventricular tachycardia, which would be if that one area, if that source is not just throwing us an extra beat every so often, but at times you will start throwing multiple beats and that's the episode of ventricular tachycardia, which means a fast heartbeat from the lower chamber. So you need to understand that because those patients may require uh, a more, are more important for us to treat, try to suppress it, especially if you see these spells or the patient has passed out. So the next step is to understand, is the heart normal? And that's when we order an echocardiogram. We wanna make sure the patient has a normal heart function, the patient doesn't have the heart chambers enlarged, or even signs of significant um, wear and tear from having years and years of high blood pressure. Patients that have significant left ventricular hypertrophy can have more PVCs as well. Once we identify, find the heart function for many patients, we have to make sure there's no coronary artery disease and a stress test is necessary as well. So that would be the basic workup. For some patients, uh, we have to make sure there's no genetic conditions. Those oftentimes we have the initial hints based on the EKG. So based on the EKG, I may see if there's a sign of a long QT syndrome. Based on the pattern on the monitor, we can see if the patient has a condition that could be caused by exercise causing more PVCs. And then in some patients to understand the different patterns that could be genetic conditions, we order not just a stress test to order for blockages, but do a treadmill test to see what is the behavior of the PVCs when the patients are running on a treadmill. So to summarize, the, the workup I'm gonna order is gonna be based on the presentation, going to be based on the age and other comorbidities the patients may have, but the basic workup will include the monitor, the echocardiogram, a test to rule out coronary artery disease, and often a stress test, just pure stress test on the treadmill to see what is the behavior of the PVCs at peak exercise. Very good. So you, you talk about um, suppressing the PVC. So, you know, obviously we have the category of patients that you know, don't feel anything, but these PVCs still could have an impact on their on their heart and how they do in the long term. So uh, it seems like you you suppress the PVC when the patient is symptomatic. I mean, I mean obviously, if it's if you have a lot of symptoms, it's bothering them, and whether it's fatigue because it, you know he has this bigeminy all the time and it has kind of a hypoperfusion, or or they're so symptomatic with the palpitations they can't even sleep, you know, at night. Uh, you talked about the PVC burden. Um, let's talk a little more about that PVC burden. I mean, obviously, the you could have, let's say, 5,000 PVCs, but 
you know, for 10 to, to 15 years, does it have the same impact on the heart than someone who's having 20,000 to 30,000 PVCs? Uh, do you actually, can you run the risk of lowering your heart function and creating this PVC induced cardiomyopathy? So I, I think you, you brought a lot of good points here. So let's start with the treatment and no treatment and, and when to treat. And then let's talk about the, the, the implications of PVCs if left untreated. So the first step, I think, for me, when I'm seeing a patient with PVCs is to understand what kind of treatment we will prescribe. And that will range from nothing, pure reassurance that today is the most common intervention for a lot of patients what we will do is conservative measures. The most common things that I've seen affecting PVC burden, I think the number one would be uh, poor sleep. And for a lot of patients today, my recommendation is a sleep study to make sure they don't have sleep apnea because the sleep apnea can increase the PVC burden. As you know, it also affects the heart in many other ways, you can increase the risk of strokes, heart attacks, diabetes, hypertension, atrial fibrillation. And so addressing sleep apnea when a patient has it, it it's quite important. And I've seen it literally take care of PVCs completely in many ways. In many patients, we can actually identify their triggers. And although the most commonly talked about trigger is caffeine, I, I would say that for me, my experience, uh, the sleep, poor sleep is, is really the most common one. But let's talk about the most common triggers that I think it's important that patients look at it, sometimes keep a diary and to try to eliminate it if possible. So caffeine, uh, some patients chocolate, some patients um, also alcohol. And the uh, patients that have a lot of PVCs alcohol related, there be, could be two patterns. Some patients have PVCs when they start drinking, and some patients have a lot of PVCs the day after they have drank. Um, this may be associated with uh, dehydration. Being dehydrated will increase PVCs in a lot of patients. So maintaining hydration, especially during the summer months in Alabama, is, is quite important to to uh, properly ad address PVCs. And having a healthy lifestyle overall, including uh, cessation of uh, tobacco products is, is important also. So that's the first step, right? The first step is to see if you can address PVCs without a medication or a procedure. So then let's talk about if that's not enough. A lot of patients have PVC symptoms, Alan, and I think that's an important thing. Sometimes I reassure patients and, and it will stop there. A lot of patients that have been having PVCs, what you find is this pattern of the PVCs will come and they're going to bother me for one to two weeks and then they go away. And it may be another three years before I have PVCs again. So for that patient, the question is, do you want to take a medication every day of your life for something that's going to happen just for a week? That is obviously after you've already done the workup to make sure there's nothing, no underlying condition, right? You've proven there's no underlying condition. This is just a benign PVC that you're just trying to address the symptoms. In those patients, what we can do sometimes is 
simply reassure and discuss with the patient and let the patient choose if they want a medication or if they want to just learn to live with it for the one or two weeks of the year when things are uh, more pronounced. But for patients that are having symptoms most days or for patients that reach the point where they want something to treat, then there are different medications we could use. The most commonly prescribed medications for PVCs are beta blockers. Beta blockers oftentimes will not decrease the PVC burden, but they will make the patients less symptomatic. So it's a good medication for someone who's having perhaps a thousand, two thousand PVCs in a day and uh, having a lot of symptoms. The beta blockers may help. Obviously, beta blockers may have side effects as well. So oftentimes, my go-to drug for um, PVCs is antiarrhythmic drugs, and flaconide is the most commonly used. Flaconide, a lot of patients respond to it quite well. However, you need to make sure patients don't have coronary artery disease, the patients don't have blockages. So for a lot of patients, flaconide is not going to be an option. And then finally, some patients that are having very symptomatic PVCs and, as we'll talk next, PVCs that are causing damage to the heart, potentially truly affecting the heart function, then we talk about ablation. And ablation is a procedure where we use a catheter to try to find the source of those PVCs and try to ablate or cauterize or freeze that area that's uh, causing where they are originating in the heart. So we'll talk about that in a little bit, Jose, but um, so it seems like, you know, the symptoms are um, an important factor uh, and to uh, when to suppress, uh, as well as the PVC burden, you know, that you mentioned, it looks like 20,000 is a pretty good number, but, you know. So the, the, the numbers in the, the studies have shown that once you're past 10,000 PVCs in a 24-hour period, your risk of developing a PVC-related cardiomyopathy, meaning having potentially the heart function decreasing because of PVCs is very high. So for those patients, either you treat, if they're symptomatic especially, or if they are not symptomatic and their heart function is completely normal, surveillance is okay. So for some patients, all you maybe needed to do is do an echocardiogram once a year or a Holter monitor once a year to, to see what the burden is to maybe change, but for some patients, reassurance is okay, but the majority of patients that reach those numbers, a treatment is absolutely indicated. So we have the, the, the problem that PVCs can cause a cardiomyopathy, but also we see patients all the time with cardiomyopathy, whether they're ischemic or non-ischemic, that have a lot of PVCs. Uh, some of them even have, uh, you know, um, resynchronization therapy, and the PVC is really in the way, it's kind of like, you know, the, the pacemaker is not able to perform, to do its work. You have a lot of these PVCs. You suppress those as well. And how do you know, you know, which one came first in some of these instances? Uh, so, Alan, you bring a very good, very good question. And I think that is uh, something that uh, there's a lot of uh, new findings and, and, and uh, we are evolving a lot in this field, understanding that. And it's all because of MRI studies uh, showing this. So, uh, as we discussed initially, there are idiopathic PVCs and there are patients with PVCs caused by their own heart disease. 
As you see cardiomyopathies or patients with heart disease in the muscle of the heart, either caused by a heart attack or by a virus or uh, whatever other condition that caused that patient to have heart failure, when you do an MRI, you may find patches of scar within the heart tissue. And those areas will correlate with areas causing PVCs. So as you start having more patchy areas of scar within the heart tissue, you will have, be more likely to have PVCs. This is also very interesting that the opposite is true, meaning patients that have a higher PVC burden and patients that have multiple morphologies or patients that have PVCs that are not coming from the usual sites that you would consider idiopathic, such as the outflow tract that we commonly see, patients that have that pattern, when you do an MRI, a large percentage of these patients will have findings on the MRI. And so those are patients that sometimes you have to keep surveillance and, and understand to make sure this is not changing, this is not progressing. And so PVCs can be idiopathic, but particularly in these patients with heart disease, it could be caused by the heart disease itself. Now, it is very important because if you have heart failure and a, a lot of PVCs, a high PVC burden, although, as you alluded, it's hard to know at sometimes what's the chicken or the egg, what came first. It really doesn't matter. In a sense, the indication to treat is the same. If you believe the PVCs have a high enough burden that it's affecting the heart failure treatment or worsening the heart function, it is indicated to treat. So we've seen many times patients that had a cardiomyopathy caused by heart, uh, by heart attacks. They have now heart failure because of prior heart attacks, prior bypass surgery, and they had uh, cardiac resynchronization therapy, oral medications. Their heart function got almost normal again, and they start having PVCs, and you look and the heart function is down again. It's back to 30%, a significant reduction, and you find that they are in bigeminy. They have a very high PVC burden. For those patients, you shouldn't waste time. You really need to treat as aggressively as we can to suppress the PVC. So the same finding we now have with atrial fibrillation, where maintaining sinus rhythm and the normal rhythm in patients with the cardiomyopathy is that important. The same finding is true in patients with PVCs as well. Well, it's really good that you can actually reverse the cardiomyopathy and, and bring the heart back to a normal function in a lot of these cases. Not all, not all, but in a lot of them, absolutely can. One of the challenges, particularly in patients with heart failure, is that they may have PVCs coming from multiple areas. And those, uh, sometimes we, we can't quite treat all of them. We can use medications, we can use procedures, but uh, the more PVC sources you have, the more challenging it is to obtain a very good result and suppress it perfectly. I guess also when to suppress is uh, the, per, the the patient coming for syncope, and uh, you're doing a you know a prolonged an event monitor or, or a halter, and you find that the PVC leads to you know ventricular tachycardia. I mean you're concerned obviously about sudden death in these patients. Um, I guess that's would be probably the um, a very good indication to try to go and suppress those patients. Absolutely. I think, you know, going back to your initial question about the workup, 
Obviously, our job is to see if there's any red flags that this might be more than simply a benign PVC, right? And is the patient having PVCs associated with ventricular tachycardia? In other words, is the PVC just the tip of the iceberg and there's a lot more underlying that we're not seeing? So in some patients, the monitor may be enough, but particularly when you hear patient passed out and in the workup, you see a lot of PVCs. Even if I have a monitor without ventricular tachycardia, oftentimes the recommendation will be an EP study, an electrophysiologic study, a procedure to see if we can induce sustained arrhythmias because of the importance of those, right? If you suspect at all that someone passed out because of ventricular tachycardia, more than just a 48-hour monitor may be needed for those patients. So there are specific red flags and particularly passing out or syncope is a very important one in this field to try to understand who needs more than just a simple workup we discussed. Very good. In your workup, you mentioned, you know, the stress test, and obviously you try to rule out coronary artery disease. You have some patients, um, you know, that do have an increased prevalence or increased frequency of their PVCs with exercise. Does that actually kind of... um, raise a red flag as well that this is more like coronary artery disease and they respond to a certain type of treatment or any relationship at all? So there is a very interesting discussion around this. So when you look in the United States, it's estimated that uh, death, sudden death among younger individuals, a large percentage of the ones that had undiagnosed reasons it was actually because of CPVT or catecholaminergic polymorphic VT. And although we frequently wait for the, the common, commonly talked about sign of, of bidirectional PVCs and VT, uh, for most patients, the only thing you see is a lot of PVCs. And when you do the stress test, you have an increased burden of PVCs during exercise. So conditions that when you see an increased burden of PVCs at peak exercise, this is indicative of a more malignant type of PVCs. So per idiopathic PVCs, what we see in most patients, typically you have a suppression of PVCs when the heart rate goes up at peak exercise. And then during the recovery phase, you see the PVCs coming back. That's a more benign pattern, right? But this pattern of having more PVCs at peak exercise could be associated with uh, coronary artery disease, could be associated with ischemia, could be associated with uh, CPVT or catecholaminergic polymorphic VT. And that's actually anytime uh, you have someone who's a young adult uh, with uh, aborted sudden death or who have had syncope and your workup has a lot of uh, syncope, especially syncope, uh, passing out at, uh, during exertion, the workup should include a stress test to look for that pattern specifically. And also, not every patient with CPVT or with this pattern needs a defibrillator, for example. Oftentimes, you can use the stress test to guide the therapy as well. You would use typically natalol um, as a drug for these patients, and you could then repeat the stress test to see if there's complete suppression at peak exercise. So the stress testing, many patients will be used not just for diagnosis, but also to uh, 
choose the therapy and see response to the therapy. Good. So now we know, you know, when to suppress those PVCs and, and you started talking a little bit about how to suppress the PVCs. You mentioned, of course, the lifestyle modification, caffeine, um, you know, the, the uh, sleep apnea, you know, correcting these factors is very important. You mentioned about pharma, pharmacological treatment, uh, such as beta blockers and antiarrhythmic. But really, I want to get to um, the, the, really the, the meat of the subject, which is the, the catheter ablation. I mean, it seems like this technique has been obviously modified and it's been around for a long time. Looks like it started mostly, uh, you know, in the OR in the early 60s and, and 70s. And, and then finally uh, came to Mark Josephson uh, and then later on the Fred Moratti to really bring the, uh, the catheter uh, ablation technique that we know now, first with electric shocks, then radio frequency in the, in the late 80s. So, I mean, obviously there's, there's a lot of background in catheter ablation and now catheter ablation, it, you know, has gotten, you know, so good. So who do you see, um, you know, who do you see is a, is a good candidate for a catheter ablation? Do, do, you, do you kind of judge that according to how the PVC looks? Uh, you know, try to uh, locate the, its location of the PVC. Um, and, uh, you know, how is it, what is the approach to ablation, you know, overall? Very good. So I think uh, all of the above, you just mentioned all of, all of the, the factors that we'll take into consideration, but let me kind of go... Now, my thought process when seeing someone with PVCs. So I think first we see if there's complete suppression with uh, conservative measures, then you choose based on how much it's affecting the patient's quality of life and the burden and also the overall heart function if we're going to go to the next step as medical therapy or procedures. So catheter ablation for PVCs has a success rate that ranges also based on where the PVC is coming from. In some areas in the heart that we can see idiopathic PVCs coming from, such as the outflow tract, so frequently the right ventricular or left ventricular outflow tract, that would be where the blood is ejecting the heart from towards this big vein or artery. In, for those patients, the success rates of the procedure is very high. We're talking about long-term success of over 90%. As you start looking at other patterns of PVCs, for example, when they're coming from the papillary muscle, when they're coming from other areas that are not traditional areas, when they're associated with scar in the heart from a prior heart attack or from a prior... Um, infectious process. So for those patients, we know that the chances of having a perfectly successful procedure is lower, and the chances of requiring more than one procedure is higher. So I like to always have that conversation with the patient, meaning I'm a lot more inclined to say the best option is an ablation. When we see that the pattern is from the outflow tract, then with other patterns. There are also interesting some patterns that have been shown to respond very well to some medications. So there's what used to be described as the Bellhausen's VT with a verapamil sensitive uh, type of uh, arrhythmias as well. So for those patients, medications may be all that you need. So 
going back to and summarizing all the thoughts here, we look at the burden, the symptoms, what has been done before by other physicians, conservative measures, and then more importantly, the pattern of the PVCs, if it tells me where they're coming from, if it's a specific syndrome or if it's idiopathic. And then based on that, once I understand what's the potential for success, choose the best approach. So let's say I went to see you in your office and, um, you know, you have got a lot of PVCs. You explained to me, I think we've got a good chance of success. Mine is actually, you think it's in the left ventricular outflow tract. Uh, <clears throat> you're going to do some cardiac CT or cardiac MR to really get kind of things kind of lined up, I guess, the anatomy and so forth. So you schedule me for next Tuesday. I mean, what should I expect, uh, you know, if I'm the patient there, you know, what happens you know, during the, um, you know, from me getting to the hospital, uh, uh, what happens during the procedure? Am I going to be out? Am I going to feel anything? Uh, when should I go home? How many days of work am I going to miss? <laughs> uh, those are very good questions. So um, oftentimes, the, the way you've put it, I, I really like it because I think it's a very practical question for the patients, but patients not infrequently, my approach is to actually say, let's say someone came and has never been on medications. I would say, this is a prescription. Try this. You have a procedure schedule in one month. And if the medications suppress it, just call and cancel. Okay. That's, I think it's oftentimes a good approach because one of the things that I tell patients is if medications will work, they're going to work within three to four days. They're, you don't need to take a medication for PVCs three months to decide if it's working. So that's a very common process of scheduling a PVC ablation with me. Oftentimes it comes with a drug prescription as well. So let's say the patient chose now to have PVCs. We will make sure that they're not on any medications that could be suppressing it for a few days, depending on the medications. Uh, we then, after the patient arrives, has the initial blood work, COVID testing, and uh, get the patient uh, in the EP lab. What the patient will find strange or perhaps different than other procedures is the number of patches or sensors we put in the chest and back. This is part of what we call the mapping system that allows us to navigate the catheters inside the heart. So there are about... Um, eight patches that will go in the chest and back. After the patient is relaxed and prepped, the next step is then to start the procedure and with access in the femoral vein or artery. And we frequently like to start our procedures if the patient is okay with it, with the patient's awake and simply using local anesthetics. It's a discussion I have with all the patients because my concern when doing a PVC ablation is that if I start with sedation, the sedation will suppress the PVCs and I may not be able to locate the PVCs. The process of locating the PVCs, what we call mapping, it's not a painful process. So once you have the catheters through the veins and arteries into the heart, the patient may be awake for about 20 minutes as we're mapping or more. And then once we locate where they're coming from, uh, I'll talk to the patient and we'll say, okay, now we're going to go to sleep. We'll give medications that they will be asleep for and monitored by the CRNA, by the nurse anesthetist, by uh, typically another 30 to 45 minutes. 
so that we can do the ablation, which would be the part where they could have pain stimulation, but they're completely sedated and, and asleep at that time. So I have an open dialogue with the patients, uh, so to speak, and start with saying, if you are okay with this approach, I believe it to be more likely to be successful than if we start with you deeply sedated. If you're too anxious to have it done with you awake in the beginning, uh, too fearful of it, it's okay, we'll get you sedated. And sometimes that is a problem because it suppresses the PVC completely. Or sometimes after sedation, we start a drip of isoproterenol, an adrenaline-like medication, so that we then induce the PVCs. So there are multiple ways to do it. I, I like this way of having an open dialogue with the patient because it just allows us to most of the times do with the patient awake and being more likely to be successful. Because the last thing you want is to get the patient in the hospital, start the procedure, and that day, not a single PVC happens. And we all know what's going to happen. The minute they leave the hospital, they come back. Absolutely. So you use mostly, uh, what kind of catheters do you use for that, uh, Joseph? You use uh, mostly radiofrequency, um, uh, RF ablation, or do you use cryo sometimes? Um, and do you, you guide yourself with uh, intra intra coronary or your intraventricular uh, ultrasound techniques? So there is, let's kind of talk about the, the modalities we use for mapping and imaging. Uh, the first is always use what we call the mapping system. So it's an electroanatomic mapping system, which uh, the tip of the catheters have a sensor or based on what we call impedance, which is electricity based. Uh, they, the sensors can locate where the catheter is inside the heart. And then as you're manipulating, you create a 3D reconstruction of the heart associated with the data of where the PVC is coming from as we keep touching the heart all around. We use frequently an intracardiac echocardiograph, echocardiography probe that we put in the right atrium via the vein. And that allows us to see very well not just where the catheter is, but where the catheter is in relationship to other important structures. So let's say I'm doing an ablation in the left ventricular outflow tract, and I want to make sure I'm at a safe distance from the coronaries. That's why we want to use the intracardiac echo. So let's say I'm doing an ablation in the papillary muscle. We want to make sure the catheter is touching. That's why we use the echo. So for most PVCs in the, in the world, overall, the ablation is performed using radio frequency. For some specific cases, the cryo ablation has advantages as well, because cryo, once you start the freeze, it is stuck to the tissue. So in areas that you have issues with stability of the catheter, that may be an advantage. But most ablations are performed with radio frequency. And now there's a new mode of energy that uh, there's a lot of um, research happening so far just for atrial fibrillation, but soon for ventricular ablation as well, which is called post-field ablation, where very high voltage pulses of electricity are given and they cause apoptosis and then cell death, uh, you know, within milliseconds uh, after the pulse. So, there are advantages to this technique because there's no collateral damage. It's uh, specific to the heart tissue, sparing vessels and nerves as well. But going back to your question, the most commonly used would be a mapping system with an intracardiac ultrasound probe 
and radio frequency type of ablation energy. Wow, that's great. So the, the patient is, you know, awakened and then it goes back to the room. Uh, do you observe them overnight or can is this done as an outpatient? You go home the same afternoon? Or? The vast majority of the patients we are sending home same day. We try to start with PVC ablations in the first or second procedures of the day so that we allow ample time for monitoring. And uh, after the procedure is completed, the patients will lay flat for four to six hours or sometimes more or less, depending uh, uh, on the complexity of the procedure. And then they get up, walk around. And if they have no more bleeding or issues in the leg sites um, where we had the catheters, they can go home. After they're discharged, I always repeat a 48-hour patch monitor six weeks post-ablation, and when they come back for follow-up, I do another echocardiogram to compare. Even if they had a normal heart function to begin with, I want to also make sure that the indices are normal or uh, have improved, meaning the dimensions of the heart. If you, you may have a normal function, but the heart may be slightly enlarged, that is a, a reason to perform this procedure. So we want to check after the ablation if there's been any changes. Just to give us a perspective, of course, in the 60s and 70s, the surgeons were performing endoresectomies and resecting, you know, part of the muscle uh, was with great success, but the mortality was quite high, you know, 5 to 15% even. And that's why, you know, it was abandoned. Here, you, the, it's so sophisticated, the catheter technique. Uh, what is the complication rate and, what, you know, how frequently do you see that? Uh, for... PVC ablation, the most common complication is excess site complications. So meaning uh, for the patients, the most common complication would be a hematoma or a large bruise where they had the uh, catheters entering. In some patients, uh, they could have damage to blood vessels uh, such as uh, pseudoaneurysms or fistulas, and those are overall described in the literature at about 2%. We have virtually eliminated those by the use of ultrasound to perform the access for every procedure. So fortunately, these numbers have gone down significantly. Most uh, PVC ablations have a very low risk of complications as long as they are performed in areas that are far from the potential of collateral damage, right? So that's where going back to our conversation, not just I look at the pattern when I'm seeing a patient to try to understand where it's coming from and the potential for collateral damage. But let's say you have someone with PVCs that are coming from close to the uh, AV node, his bundle area. You could cause heart block with the procedure that needs to be discussed with the patient before. Let's say you have PVCs coming from the coronary cusps of the aorta. There is the potential for damage to blood vessels. So those are PVCs. The complications will be site specific. They will be based on where in the heart the ablation is being performed. Because the ventricle is thicker than the atria, Complications such as bleeding or tamponade around the heart, they're very infrequent with PVCs. That's great. And Jose, what's the future you know, of uh, PVC ablation uh, and PVC treatment? So the 
biggest changes I've seen over the past couple of years has been the heavy use of MRI to risk stratify patients. And we are finding patients that uh, you thought it was just an idiopathic PVC that they actually have extensive uh, areas of uh, uh, fibrosis, also scar tissue within the heart. Who are these patients? It would be patients with coronary disease, patients with multiple morphologies, non-left bundle branch pattern PVC. So patients that have PVCs that are not coming from the outflow track. And oftentimes that will be patches of scar at the base of the papillary muscle. This could be even associated with a mitral valve prolapse. Uh, so the PVCs, I think in terms of the treatment, meaning ablation, we're becoming a lot better because the catheters have progressed a lot. The catheters now we use to map and locate the PVCs, what we call multipolar catheters, multi-electro catheters that will at one at a given second take about 50, 60 points um, to try to understand where the PVCs are coming from. So our ability to detect where they're coming from has improved significantly. The ability to treat them is improving. And with the new forms of ablation, such as PFA, I think we'll be a lot more likely to have successful single procedures. So the need to have multiple procedures will decrease for patients. About medications, we haven't seen quite a significant change over the past many years in, in drugs that are improving uh, quality of life for patients with PVC. So most of the data has been around the diagnosis, the understanding of what patients have PVC that are associated perhaps with uh, not a benign uh, presentation or could have other pathologies, and then the ability to deliver the lesions during ablation is improving significantly as well. Looks like PVC ablation treatment is following the same uh, as the atrial fib ablation and, and the uh, normalization of the normal sinus rhythm really bringing back heart function to normal and, and improved quality of life. Absolutely. That's a good way to look at it, I believe. And I think, you know, we physicians also, what, what's happening as we treat more patients, we are having a, a deeper level of understanding of who needs an intervention, who needs to simply be reassured, who needs a medication, who doesn't who doesn't need anything. So I think that's that's another very important aspect of this. But you're right; that's a very good parallel. It's uh, we are improving quickly in the in the this field of or subspecialty of uh, uh, treating ventricular arrhythmias, not just PVCs but also ventricular tachycardia. There's been quite significant changes recently in how we're able to help patients. Dr. Jose Osorio, thank you very much for this um, collaboration on everything we want to know about PVCs and how to treat them. Um, again, thank you for your collaboration today. Thank you. This was great. Uh, good talking to you. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.